Section 11 of The Catholic's Ready Answer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Catholic's Ready Answer by Reverend M. P. Hill. Section 11. Catholic and Protestant Countries. It may be well to remind the reader that this article, as well as all the others, was written before the outbreak of the Great War, an event which has set many things in a new light. But the only effect it can have upon the article is to place additional emphasis upon one of the important lessons which the author has sought to convey. The Charge The leading countries of the world today are Protestant. Great Britain, Germany and the United States are the foremost nations in point of political power, commerce and industry and general enlightenment whilst catholic countries such as spain italy and ireland are very unprogressive and france is apparently on the decline the reply the above indictment of catholic countries is misleading as a statement of facts and is false in the inferences lurking in it but before coming to close quarters with it let us glance at the spirit as well as at the logical bearings of the anti-Catholic contention in the matter. In the first place, is it a commendable thing to be insisting so much on temporal prosperity as a test of the merits of a religion? The great test of any religion must be found in its spiritual elements, and, after all, is not the Protestant argument one that could be turned to good account in their own favour by the Jews, the children of Abraham might plead in their own case that, although scattered over the face of the earth and without a country, they nevertheless bear with them a mark of divine favour in the possession of the good things of this life. The Israelites had indeed the promise of temporal prosperity as regards a good deal more than the possession of gold, a promise whose fulfilment depended on their fidelity to God. But for us Gentiles, is there any law that infallibly points to temporal well-being as a sign of spiritual well-being and divine approbation. Think of the strange inferences that might be based upon such a principle. Pagan Japan has recently stepped into the front rank of nations. Does that fact make Shintoism or Buddhism or Confucianism any better than it was ten years ago? Does Russia's colossal power argue that what Protestants are pleased to call Russian superstition bears the seal of divine approval. In the second place, if the anti-Catholic argument is valid today, it must have been valid long before today. Well then, let us go back a couple of centuries. At that period the dominant nations were Spain, Austria and France, Catholic countries all three. Apply the Protestant principle to that situation and see how it works, and suppose the whirligig of time should bring about a similar situation in the future, what then? It really looks as though our separated brethren were taking advantage of the fact that just at present the wheel of fortune has placed the Protestant nations at the top. But suppose it should be given a new turn. Protestant prosperity and Protestant arguments would have a great fall. The secret of the prosperity of the leading nations of today is not to be found in Protestantism. It must be sought elsewhere, but on that point we shall have a word to say presently. We have been granting that the leading powers are Protestant, 
but the statement needs a qualification. In Germany, considerably more than a third of the population is Catholic, and for many years the Catholic Party has held the balance of power. If we turn to our own country, we find that under the rule of the federal government, there are some 22 or 23 million Catholics. Our Catholic ancestors played an important part in the making of our country and in the development of its resources. Their children today are forging ahead in all directions, and where they find a fair opening are proving to the world that their Catholicity is no bar to success in a worldly sense. As to France, all its greatness dates from its Catholic past, and it still remains the richest country per capita in the world. But after all, why confine our attention to the greater nations? Greater and less do not change the species. There is a group of smaller nations that may be studied no less profitably than the larger. Sweden is a Protestant nation, and in the days of yore was one of the doughtiest champions of Protestantism. What is Sweden today, and what is its recent consort Norway? Both countries are but ciphers in the great transactions of the modern world. Protestant Sweden was on the way to imperial greatness when she fell into the hands of Charles Twelfth. The chivalric follies of that monarch soon stripped the country of important possessions, drained the national treasury, and sacrificed the lives of hundreds of thousands of Swedes. Internal dissensions and other causes gradually lopped off her dependencies and completed her ruin. We shall not be so ungenerous as to attribute the decline of Sweden to Protestantism, but we would ask for the same impartiality on the side of our critics in dealing with Catholic countries. Holland is a Protestant country in the sense in which Germany is, and Holland, we admit, is not by any means starving, but to what trifling dimensions its greatness is shrunk, if the Holland of today be compared with the Holland that was once on the point of becoming a world power, and ranking with Great Britain and France. Belgium is a Catholic country, and yet it may be pointed to as an object lesson in general progressiveness. It is a beehive of industry, and on the whole is probably the most happy and prosperous country in the world. Its well-filled treasury, its thriving commerce, its social and economic institutions, models of their kind, are a pointed refutation of the oft-repeated charge that Catholicism unfits a nation to achieve temporal happiness and prosperity. But the treatment of questions like the present one would be utterly superficial if we fail to get at the real causes of national prosperity. Now these are proved to consist, in the main, in purely natural advantages possessed by the nations that have prospered. Qualities of soil and climate, geographical position, and in our time the possession of native coal. These circumstances, together with the more exceptional ones of national temperament, favouring progress, and the occasional guiding influence of great men, are the dominant factors producing what is called national greatness. It is easy to talk in a high strain of the progressive spirit generated by the true evangel, and it may be a trifle unpoetical to have to descend from so high an altitude to the consideration of such practical realities as coal beds, but it has the great advantage of bringing one nearer to the truth. To eschew such considerations is to act the part of a superficial philosopher. England, without her supply of native coal, 
would today rank as a second or third-rate power. On the continent it is the presence or the absence of such natural advantages that must account for the difference, not only between country and country, but also between parts of one and the same country. The visitor to Germany, entering from the west, lights first upon the Rhine province, which nature has dowered with a rich vintage and fields of a golden grain, whilst the plentiful supply of native coal ministers to commerce and manufacturers. The Rhine province is mainly Catholic. On the other hand, East Prussia, which is predominantly Protestant, is a comparative waste, and there the industries languish. A like comparison might be drawn between Catholic Bavaria and Protestant Saxony. It must be noted, however, as regards the present dominion of coal, that it is likely to be supplanted in no small degree by the utilisation of the natural waterfall as a motive agent. Here is Italy's chance, and as a matter of fact, Italy has begun to improve the advantages she possesses in the watercourses of the Apennines. And what about Catholic Spain? Where Spain is not hated, she is regarded with a mournful interest, such as is always awakened by the sight of fallen greatness. Spain's great good fortune in the 16th and 17th centuries proved her bane in the end. Immense colonial interests and a large influx of the precious metals diverted her attention from those truer sources of wealth, agriculture and commerce. But there is nothing to lead us to think that if her interests had been in the guardianship of Protestants, they would have fared better. Political folly entailing the loss of large possessions may be abundantly illustrated from the history of Sweden, Holland and England. As to Ireland, it is true, doubtless, that she is the least prosperous country in the world, but there is no need of pleading her cause, here or elsewhere. It has been successfully pleaded at the bar of civilization. One thing is constantly evidenced by Irishmen, and that is that wherever they find a field for the display of their native energy, as in the United States, Canada and Australia, they show the world that centuries of ill-usage have neither damped their spirit nor dulled their power of thought or action. So it really does look as though our critics had been building up an argument against us on the basis of the merest accidents of political and economic history. But even though their argument were more logical, there is one fact that should weigh more than all the others in the estimate formed of modern European nations, to wit, that the greatness of some of the leading countries of Europe is reared upon the unscrupulous statecraft of those who had in their hands the making of those nations in days gone by. We need but mention the names of Frederick II of Prussia, Catherine II of Russia, and the man of blood and iron, who was the creator of the present German Empire. Are the critics of Catholicism prepared to admit with these worthies that it matters not how a state is made, provided it is made? But the day will come where the nations will no longer be classified as Catholic and Protestant, and when the struggle will no longer be between different forms of Christian belief. Religion and irreligion will then be the only contestants in the field, and in that day the one great bulwark of religion will be the Catholic and Apostolic or Roman Church. For in no other religious body is there such promise of vitality, engendered by unity, as that held out by the Church, which is under the guidance of the successor of St. Peter. 
End of section 11. Recording by Florence.